All right, students. Last time we spoke, we talked about um, the Aeneid Book 5, Part 2, and the Aeneid Book 6, Part 1, and we made it into... Where is it that we made it into last time? Yes. Hell. Hell, uh, that would be the Christian name for it, but the underworld in any case. Uh, and actually, just an interesting question here is, what is the underworld world called for Homer? Yes. Hades, named after... Uh, Named after the god who resides there, exactly so. But what is the name of the underworld here? There are a couple different names for it, yes? Uh, uh, that is one of the dimensions, that is one of the areas within this hell, Tartarus and Elysium, yes? It would be Pluto, Dis, and Orcus. Pluto, Dis, or Orcus. Dis is the name that is really used in the Aeneid. Alright, in any case, remember that our thesis from last time was that whenever you go into an underworld, whether it be a poem, a book, or in a movie, that underworld is a representation of the collective memory of a people, where our greatest treasures exist. What are the greatest treasures of a people that are kept and transmitted through each generation of that people? They're what? Yes? They're stories, the memories, and memories are conveyed by means of what? Stories, exactly. Stories are the vehicles of memories and thoughts. In any case, let me turn off this river of weeping. Alright, good. Alright, so, very briefly... I want to make a quick correction. I had said that there was an oracle at Delos called the Sibyl, who would be the guide to uh, Virgil, or excuse me, to Aeneas on his way through the underworld. That is incorrect. She is actually the oracle from Cumae. I'll write that right here. Cumae is an area within the coastal region of Euboea. I remember thinking that was wrong because Delos is obviously far closer to Troy, and that's why we went to Delos earlier in the semester, and why Aeneas, or rather, why Aeneas went to Delos earlier on his journey. Uh, uh, it's just not that close. In any case, we learn from this Sybil, who is going to be the ultimate, the final real prophetess that we listen to in this part of the text, that we are going to have to fight a new Achilles. And in order to fight this new Achilles, or rather, a question I asked is, do you think this new Achilles is going to be external and will be Turnus, the Rutulian, who we will meet in Book 7? Or do you think that this new Achilles will be the rage that grows within Aeneas' own heart? Will it be an internal enemy or an external enemy? Another question I would ask there is, which do you think is a worse enemy to have to deal with? An internal enemy or an external en enemy? In any case, Aeneas then, with the Sybil, had to find uh, a... An object that you can only find if you are destined to find it. An object of destiny. Uh, I compared it to the golden ticket of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory yesterday, but what is this golden object which only somebody who is fated to receive it can grasp? Yes? A, a golden branch. A golden bough. Exactly so. He grabs the golden bough and he enters into the Roman Dis, the Roman underworld, through the jaws of Orcus. And so we are there. And there we first see a tree, a tree made of horrors. And I said that the greatest horror is your own imagination. And I made a reference to the probably the scariest monster you know about these days, which many of you call what? It. And what is its great power? It can change into what? Your greatest fear. Whatever your greatest fear is. And what is it that can demonstrate or show to you at any particular moment what your greatest fear is? Your own imagination. That's right, your own imagination. And so the first thing we are confronted in entering this underworld, this store of collective memory, are the horrors that our own imaginations can come up with. Double skillas, um, which is fairly horrifying. Twelve-headed, like, monstrous freak. Hydras, 
Jerion and Briarius. Remember, Briarius was even even made Joe scared with his fifty heads and his hundred arms, and once even helped him be unbound because of the conniving of Athena, Minerva, Juno, Hera, and Poseidon, Neptune. All right, good. One thing I didn't mention. There are just a couple of things that I didn't mention yesterday that I'd like to mention now. Palinurus, who we meet before we get on Char Charon's ferry uh, that goes across Styx and Cocytus, he makes a request of us. He says, because he is as of yet unburied, he would like to be taken across the river with us. This is not allowed. The Sibyl will not allow it either. It goes against nature. That'll be an interesting concept that we talk about when you read Macbeth next year, what it means to go against nature and how humans can do that since we have such a, such a diverse range of activities that we can engage in. In any case, since he has not been buried, he cannot cross forward. Does anybody recall from the reading how long somebody has to wait to cross the river Styx in order to enter the underworld? Yes? It's not a thousand years. Yes? It is 100 years. We will see a figure for a thousand years later. It's slightly different, though, what that applies to. Right. So Palinurus wants to be given special, wants to be made a, a what does it mean? You want a what made for you when you want to be treated specially? You want to be an, a what to the rule, yes? An exception, and he tries to be an exception. That's not how it works, however. In any case, we went through, we then passed by, whilst all on the boat, the three-headed guard of the underworld. He's a dog. What's his name? Not Fluffy from Harry Potter, but Cerberus. And what is it that we threw to Cerberus? So sweet to keep him from gnawing our flesh. Yes? It was honey cakes. Does anybody recall what is thrown to Cerberus next year in the Inferno in the Circle of Gluttony? Yes? It is just mud. It is just mud. Which seems to be a symbol for, well, that seems to be, huh, interesting. It's almost like that's what food is when you remove from it. Hmm, I have so many thoughts so interesting because, of course, Man is supposed to have come from dust or mud, according to Ovid or the Old Testament. And so it's almost as if uh, that's like food without its varnish. I don't know. I'll have to think about that some. But you make me think. In any case, we get past the Guardian. We land on the other side of the river. We are there. Remember, too, interestingly enough, that there was an area very similar to this in the Iliad. I made a case. I made the case that in Book 24 of the Iliad that it was like Priam was going to the underworld. He had to move at night. He was guided himself by a ferryman. Who remembers who guided him and even got him through the gates of the Achaeans? Yes? Hermes, Mercury, who is himself a psychopomp, a cinder of souls, just like, uh, just like Charon is. And then he got through a giant gate that no human alone could get through. And then he went and saw uh, a pitiless person, pitiless like the god of the, the dead. In fact, Achilleus had been compared to Hades because Hades alone of all the gods is the one who never changes his will because what happens to all people no matter what? They die. they die. And then they're dead forever. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then what is it that Priam attempted to get from this god of death? His, uh, the dead body of his son. The dead body of his son. Does he get to bring a living person back to the world of the living or just a corpse? Just a corpse. And that's all you can get from this underworld. In fact, I will talk about that today when I mention Orpheus. Okay, uh, we then meet the judge of the dead. His name is Minos. Uh, in front of Tartarus, we will see his brother, Radamanthus. We will see Minos again next year in the Inferno. Anybody recall what he'll be half, half human? Half what? Yes? Snake. snake indeed. Snake indeed. And this is a symbol for the fact that humans, like snakes, can what on other humans? 
prey on other humans. That's quite right. That's quite right. The snakes are outside the walls, but they're also very much within the walls themselves. In any case, we saw several women with tragic fates. Pacify, who had a minotaur as a son. That's a half bull, half bull, half man, so pretty horrific. Uh, Phaedra, who accused her son or her stepson Hippolytus of raving her, even though she had attempted to seduce him, and then he ends up dying, fleeing away from his father Theseus. Procris, who thought that her husband was cheating on her, so she followed him out to a hunt, and then when she accidentally stirred some bushes, he thought, there's a deer, or a boar. Shot, hmm, sorry, that was your wife, bro. In any case, La Laodamia, I couldn't say her name yesterday, so I thought about how to say it last night and make sure I got, made sure I got the syllabification down. That's a hard word to say, by the way. Uh, anytime a word goes from a certain set of syllables to more syllables, when you change it from noun to adjective or vice versa, it's very tough. It's very tough. In any case, uh, Laodamia, uh, did I tell you what happened to her yesterday? I don't think I did. She had something very sad happen to her. No, I think I did, but I'll say it again. It was the Casper thing. She, uh, she was the wife of Protesilaus, who was the first Achaean who died at Troy. And so tragic was that death that he was allowed to come back to life for three hours. We'll see a very similar person uh, to that um, next year from the Sphere of Jupiter and Paradiso. We'll hear about uh, St. Gregory doing some necromancy. In any case, in any case, uh, <laughs> which will be very interesting. And it'll involve the Emperor Trajan, I believe. Protosilaus was brought back to life for three hours. She got to have three precious hours with him. But after those three hours were up, what happened to him again? He died. And what do you think she decided, sadly? That she wanted to join him, and so she committed suicide. And then that brings up our last person, Dido, who also did what? Committed suicide. Committed suicide to, for an unmerited and unjust, or an unmerited and unfated death. Yes, very good. All right, and we attempted to talk to Dido. We didn't know that Dido was dead yet. We did as an audience, but Aeneas did not. There's some dramatic irony there. Um, and he attempts to talk to her, but just like Aias the Greater, she what's when, he, when Aeneas tries to speak to her to try and make amends. She flees. And symbolically, what does that mean? If this is a place of memory, and you are trying to, to make up for something you did in the past, why could you not do it now? Close. Yes? Because you can't change the past, right? Dido is just a memory. You can't change the interactions you had with her while she's alive when she's dead. She's already what, unfortunately? Dead. So the time to make up with people is when they're still what? Alive. Keep that in mind, y'all. Keep that in mind. In any case, we then see some Darden and Achaean chiefs, Agamemnon and his forces, they run away, which is sort of funny because how many times did Agamemnon suggest that the Achaeans run away? Three times. Only one time joking. All right, good. Then the road divided between Tartarus and Elysium. This is where we're going to start today. Tartarus, I had said, is the place of punishment, very similar to the idea of hell. You see there Ixion on a flaming wheel spinning about, burning. Uh, you see, uh, or we see, or we hear um, Tidius with his liver being eaten by the two vultures. Tantalus uh, forever wanting those fruits above his head and the water beneath his chin. And also Sisyphus forever rolling that ball. That rock up, the titans are also down there. These seem to be examples of evil people or people who do evil, people you do not want to emulate. We hear shrieks and cries of pain coming from Tartarus. Very interesting because we have a parallel in Elysium. In Elysium we will hear singing, which is interesting because these are the two sounds that what sorts of creatures make. 
screaming and singing. Humans, right? It's almost like these are the sounds we make. Um, it's, it's almost like these are the sounds that accompany the choices and the actions that we make. And interestingly enough, when we get to the Inferno next year, we will hear screams and sighs of pain and moaning. And in Elysium, we will hear singing. Uh, in the Paradiso, we will hear singing. It's almost like the choices that you make determine the way that you communicate yourself in the world. In any case, Radamanthus is in front of Tartarus. We're not going to go down to Tartarus this year. We'll go there next year. So let's go to Elysium. And there we enter the groves of blessedness, sometimes called the fields of happiness. Both sound essentially the same. There seems to be a very strong connection here. Uh, Something about heaven areas and gardens seem to be connected together. Whether you be in Ojigia, which is a heavenly garden that grows all its own food where you can be immortal. Whether you be in Eden, which is a garden that grows all its own food and knows no pain or suffering in eternal time. Or whether you even be in terrestrial paradise on the top of uh, Dante's Purgatorio. Or even in the Celestial Rose, which is the garden at the top of the Paradiso. Which is the ultimate heaven of heavens for Dante. Gardens seem to be the place where rewards happen. And it makes sense because what grows in gardens, you say plants, but I say flowers. And the petals of a flower are the most beautiful part of a rose, which is the most beautiful part of a garden. This is the place where the ultimate manifestations, the best of the best of the humans go. Just as the rose is the highest of the flowers, you might disagree with that, and the petals are the most beautiful part, so here are the roses of humanity. In any case, we see Orpheus singing. Something interesting about Orpheus is he is one of the characters who actually, while alive, did come down to the underworld. He came down to the underworld because his wife had been killed by a snake bite on his birth, or not on his birthday, sorry, on their wedding day. Something interesting. So beautiful was his song that Proserpina, the queen of the dam, allowed him to walk back up out of the underworld with his wife. Now, there was one condition placed on this. If he is to leave with her, he must be out of the underworld before he looks back at her, or she will be sucked back down. He exits the underworld, he looks behind him, where can you guess she still is? She's in the gateway, she gets sucked back down. Who can express to me symbolically what that means, knowing that an underworld is a place of collective memory and that she had died. Yes? That's very close. I think you have the right idea. Yes? You can look back on a memory, but you can't bring it back. That's right. You can look back on a memory. You can reflect on it. You can learn from it. You can, in a way, communicate with it. But can you bring someone who has died from your memory back into the present, back into the real world? No, no, and we will actually see an example of this here, because who do we meet? The person we've wanted to meet since book three and book five, book three where he died, book five where we had funeral games for him, and Kaisis. And interestingly enough, we will be able to learn from him, but we will not be able to what him? Hug him, touch him, just as Odysseus could not touch his mother Anticlea, just as uh, Aeneas in book one could not hug his wife after she had died. We cannot touch Anchises, but we can learn from him. And what we will learn is about the future from someone from the past. Exactly, and that's what we're always doing in here. And something interesting here 
is you might have often wondered, if I were to die and go to a heaven place where I were rewarded, what would I spend my time doing? When I was seven years old, I used to think I would play baseball every day. And maybe I still would. But what is Anchises doing? He's thinking. Which is very powerful, a very interesting image. This seems to be a stoic idea on what heaven would be. Because if he is thinking, he is not overcome by his what's. His emotions. And we will actually say in the very next slide, here, this one, that in order for souls to purify themselves so that they never need to be reincarnated after a thousand years in the groves of blessedness, they must expurgate or expiate their bodily desires and emotions. I'm just going to go back here for one second. And so it's almost as if the most divine thing a human can do, the most heavenly thing a human can do is what? Think. And think for themselves. In fact, that is literally the thing that what other creatures that are just like us, except for in this way, cannot do. What are these other creatures called that are also animate? Animals, right. Right, it's like the least animal and most divine thing humans are capable of is thought. And, well, the philosopher Plato seems to think this, and certainly Aristotle does as well. In any case, Virgil had read both of them. So down here, Anchises explains Elysium in the heavens. What is it they do there? What is it they spend their time doing in this place of eternal rest? Well, apparently it's not quite eternal rest. These souls must purify themselves of bodily desire and emotions. This is very similar to what will be happening on the Purgatorio, the mountain of Purgatory in Dante's uh, Purgatorio next year, the second part, uh, the second, second canticle of Dante's Divine Comedy. What the souls will be doing there is expurgating sin. Sin is often based on a corruption of one's desire. Think about it. Uh, if you are gluttonous, that means you overeat. What's the reason that you eat? Because you have a what? You have a desire for food because you have a what? You have a body. You have a physical body. Exactly. And so that desire that can corrupt you comes from the fact that you have a body. This is one of these ancient ideas that it is precisely because of the fact that you are a body and not just a soul or a mind, that you can do wrong, that you can do evil, that you can sin. In any case, the uh, second question I would have is, uh, the, the very first sin you will see next year, after Glut or before gluttony, sometimes they were moved around in medieval catalogs, is lust. Lust means you wish to reproduce with as many people as possible. Essentially, that's kind of a vulgar way of looking at it. But the reason that you need to reproduce is the fact that you have a what? That will die someday. A body, right. You have to spread your genes onto the next generation, which grows a new body, adapts to the current reality, and then it does what eventually? Reproduces itself, and then you're part of a golden chain. In any case, I want you to think about this. Because these ancients, these Stoics, seem to think that it is your emotions and your desires which can corrupt your soul, which keep you from thinking. But on the other hand, you might want to think, would life be anything like how you think it is without your desires, without your emotions. And in fact, there is some evidence that actually we developed our prefrontal cortex, cortices, our prefrontal cortex, in order to think through how to get what we want. You use your mind to fulfill your what's. Desires. desires. Exactly. So what would you even use your mind for if you did not know desire? It's hard to say. Maybe you would just figure out big philosophical questions. But would you even want to? I don't know. And then your emotions, too. It does seem important for us to be able to control our raging and storming emotions. But to be without emotions, like the 
creatures or the people in the giver. I have very rarely had a student that says they would be willing to live a life without their emotions. Even though emotions can cause the greatest catastrophes in your lives. Interestingly enough. Well, in order to stay in this heaven, there are two paths. You can either expurgate your desires and your emotions. And then you get to stay in the field of gladness forever. You only have a thousand years to do it though. Which makes me think, the more you gave in to your emotions and desires, probably the harder it is to get rid of them. Probably the longer it takes, probably the more likely you are to be reincarnated. Which means that the more you give into your body during the course of your life, the more likely it is you're going to have to do everything all what again? All over again. Which sounds pretty hellish, right? Very Sisyphean. It's like, you live this whole life. You try and live a good life. You go to the afterlife. You spend a thousand years trying to expurgate your, your desires and your emotions, and then you fail. What's next? Gotta do it all over again. It's actually a very Hindu sort of concept. They have an idea of reincarnation and their religion, which is very interesting. I don't know to what extent Virgil would have run into those sorts of notions. That said, Plato in his, I think, I believe it's the Phaedrus, yes it is, uh, he has an account. Uh, no, no, I'm thinking particularly not of the Phaedrus, but of the Phaedo, yes, where Socrates dies. He has an explanation of what can happen to someone after they die. He has an idea of the transmigration of the souls, metempsychosis, of uh, reincarnation. His idea seems to come from Pythagoras, but there are, is some evidence that potentially Plato did travel or have knowledge of uh, India and the Aryans there. Um, interestingly enough, this idea of reincarnation seems to be Western and Eastern. It's everywhere. And it doesn't even necessarily seem to be a good idea, because it seems like you want to escape the cycle of generations here. It seems like the best thing is to stay in the groves of blessedness and not have to deal with the corrupting world itself. You'll see a lot of this in Dante next year. He takes, he apparently sat down every day and read his Virgil and really wanted to be one with Virgil, but even a little bit more. Even a little bit more. Yes. Can't you escape the chain of reincarnation in Hinduism? Yes. Yes, you can. And it would not be a very useful story if there were no escape. This is how things are, and you can't do anything about them. It's like, why even tell that story? You know what I mean? In any case, in any case, Anchises, okay, yes. If you fail to purify yourself in these thousand years, you have to read from, you have to drink from a very famous river. It's called the River Lethe, which comes from the Greek word lanthana, which means to forget. Can you guess what happens to your memories of your life after you drink from Lethe? You forget them, and then you start over anew. And that seems to be the idea, uh, based on Plato's idea of recollection as learning, for why all babies are born not knowing what? Anything, really, except for what instinct gives to them. Very good, very good. Uh, you will see Lethe at the top of mountain, the mountain of purgatory next year, alongside a creation of Dante, which will be the river Unoe, which helps to remind you of good times. It sounds like a really good river. I'd say that's probably what wine is. Drinking in moderate, drunk, drunk in moderate, drinking, wow. Drunk in moderation by those who are over 21. Yes? That's an interesting question. How Deja vu means already seen in French. It is the concept of doing something that you feel like you have done before, being in a place or a situation that you've been in before. I would have to think about it to see how I would connect that to this. But I think, 
I think you have an interesting idea there. Are you suggesting that deja vu is, is like when you do something in one life that you had done in another and have sort of an eerie feeling of that being the case? Yeah. That's interesting. I like that. I'll think about that. We'll talk about that in seminar on Tuesday. In any case, Anchises shows us the history of Rome, which is history for the then Romans, but the future for the then Trojans. He shows us Silvius's. Uh, or he shows us Silvius. Silvius will be the son of Aeneas, which is very interesting because Aeneas definitely needs a wood in order to have a new son. A new wife. And that will be his European wife. Her name will be Lavinia. She will be the son of King Latinus. He shows us Romulus. We know that Romulus founded which people? Of course, the Romans. They're not called the Remans because what did, Rome, what did Romulus do to Remus when he jumped over his tiny little wall? Slayed him. Slayed him. Uh, in any case, we also see Marcellus. I'm going to say a couple things about Marcellus in a second. I'll say one thing now. Marcellus was the beloved nephew of Octavian Caesar, Augustus Caesar, the man who had everything. He was king, and he started a time of peace called the Pax Romana, which we know about. That said, one thing he didn't have was his own son, but his sister had a son that he doted on, that he loved. His sister's name was Octavia. Not very creative, his name was Octavian. This son, though he never officially adopted him, he definitely thought was going to be the next ruler of Rome. Something tragic happened. He died when he was young. A young death is the worst sort of thing we can possibly imagine. You see the plant grow just to see the rose almost bloom, just to see the plant die. And I, well, I, I guess I'll talk about that. Because there was a commentator who wrote something called, or wrote a work called The Life of Virgil named Aelius Donatus. Check this out. Apparently Virgil, while he was writing the Aeneid, would do regular readings in front of Octavian, the king who first conscripted him uh, to write it. And he supposedly read out loud books 2, 4, and 6. This is what happened. Virgil recited three whole books of his Aeneid for Augustus. That's Octavian. The second, fourth, and sixth. The most famous ones. The fall of Troy, the fall of Dido, the descent of Dido, and, of course, the underworld. This last out of his well-known affection for Octavia, who, being present at his recitation, is said to have fainted at the lines about his son. There are many fam famous paintings of this happening, by the way. You shall be Marcellus. And she was revived only with difficulty, she, and afterwards she sent Virgil 10,000 sesterces for each of the verses. Virgil includes her dead son in the underworld of his own text. When she hears the name of her son, she faints. At first you might think she's fainting out of sadness or horror, but she might also be fainting out of gratitude. Because what is it that Virgil does for her now dead son by including his name in his national epic of Rome? Not just honors him. This book is still written, or still read, 2,038 years after having been written. What, ha what does he do for Marcellus, yes? I gave him a legacy. I'm looking for a word that starts with an I. He immortalized Marcellus. It was a great act of charity by him. In any case, something weird, though. Something weird, yes. Yes. Sesterces, those are, uh, that's, uh, I don't know all the mo monetary units of the Romans, but that was, it was like one-third of some other monetary unit. It was some uh, unit of money. 
some unit of money. I can look that up. I was actually looking at that yesterday. In any case, something odd happens. After Anchises tells all these details to Aeneas and shows him all that will come, all that will come from his tragic sufferings, we see two gates, two gates that we recognize from the Odyssey when Penelope was talking about her dream of the geese that were actually suitors being slaughtered by an eagle, which was actually Odysseus, and that, and that actually told us that it was Odysseus. Those two gates are again the gate of horn and the gate of ivory. We, we recall true dreams come out of the gate of horn, which is the scary dark looking gate. False dreams come out of the gate of ivory. Which gate does Aeneas go out through? The gate of ivory, which is very problematic for our interpretation of him. And this recalls to us the idea I shared with you from book one, that this is potentially a work of propaganda. Because if Aeneas is going out from the gate of ivory, the gate of false dreams, it's almost like Virgil is saying, what about Aeneas and the story itself? That it is itself false, that it rings false. Potentially so. Potentially so. I don't even know necessarily another interpretation to put alongside this, except for potentially this. It is interesting that you find the gates of ivory and the gates of horn together in the underworld. You might say, why would they be there when dreams come out from them? I would say two things to that. A, we know sleep and death to be what? Twins, Thanatos and Hypnos. Two, you know that a memory is made of the same stuff as what? Dreams. Because can you touch a memory or a dream? No. But even still, I'm not sure why it is that Aeneas goes out through the gate of ivory. And I'll have to think about that. And you'll have to think about that too. But that ends the first half of the Aeneid, the Odysseic half. Next time we will get to the Iliadic half. Perhaps inspiration will have struck us. Perhaps we will have our own dreams.